0: All right, so this evening, uh, we will be back in Deuteronomy. It's been a few weeks, uh, so um, quick reset. Where are we? We are on the east side of the Jordan River. We are um, studying, uh, at least at this point in chapters uh, Deuteronomy 6 through 26, uh, this extended commentary on the Decalogue on the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And Moses is giving this extended commentary on the Decalogue to the second generation of Israelites uh, who came out of Egypt. Again, so just remember that God rescued (coughs) that first generation of Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, brought them... Uh, out on the Passover and uh, took them through the Red Sea, took them to Mount Sinai, which you can read about in Exodus 19 and following. Uh, gave them the vision for the tabernacle worship in uh, the the main portion of the book of Exodus, and then as they were traveling through the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land, they are on the verge of the Promised Land around Numbers chapter 13 or so, and they uh, disobey the Lord um, and uh, complain against the Lord. Uh, And and you can read about that in Numbers 13 and 14. They did so 10 times and because uh, God had reached uh, the limits of his patience with that first generation of Israelites whom he redeemed out of Egyptian slavery, he said that they would all fall in the wilderness and so they wander around uh, in the wilderness, as it were, for 40 years. And, and uh, so here we are now at the end of those 40 years and near the end of Moses' life. Moses is 120 years old. And at the end of Deuteronomy, uh, he will die without having passed over into the Promised Land. But before he dies, he's now giving this final word of exhortation uh, to that second generation of Israelites. So that's what Deuteronomy is. Uh, Deuteronomy means second law, and this is why, of course, the Ten Commandments uh, are in the Bible twice. So if you would turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Last time we were together, we considered the extended commentary Uh, In Deuteronomy chapters 15 and 16, that was an extended commentary on the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment begins in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. And then it goes on for a couple of more verses to expound on that particular command. And what we saw last time in Deuteronomy 15 and 16 is that the Sabbath day was not even addressed one time in those two chapters. Instead, if you'd like to go back very briefly, to Deuteronomy chapter 15, uh, we saw the stipulations for the Sabbatic year, that is the seventh year. We saw that in Deuteronomy 15. And then we saw a recap uh, in Deuteronomy 16 verses 1 through 17 of the three feasts that God had already prescribed uh, back in Leviticus 23 for the nation of Israel the feasts of Passover, of weeks. And which is Pentecost, and then the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so those were repeated from Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, and again, a lot of this is repeat because this is the second generation of Israelites. The point here is that what we saw last time was that the fourth commandment itself, that is to observe the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, functions as a summary statement that, um, Now, it's clearly a command in itself, but it's also functioning in the Decalogue as a summary statement for how God is to be worshipped by the Israelites, at least in terms of time frames. So, not just the Sabbath day, which is the seventh day. Uh, day of the week, which we would know as Saturday, but also the seventh year where debts are remitted, as well as the feasts of Passover weeks and booths, so three times per year The Israelites are commanded by God to meet in one place together as a congregation. So again, the fourth commandment of the Decalogue functions as a summary of that larger commentary for how God desires to be worshipped by the people with whom he is in covenant. That is, the nation Israel. And so I belabor the point a little bit uh, because I want you to see the same thing this evening. So tonight we're going to talk about the extended commentary on the fifth commandment. So back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the fifth commandment is found in verse 16. This is how it reads. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. So that is one verse, one command, honor your father and your mother. And that is a command, of course, that is to be obeyed. By the covenant people of God. There is no doubt about that. The expectation, of course, is that the Israelites will honor their father and their mother. And there's a, a, this is a command that comes with a blessing. And Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul points that out in Ephesians chapter 6, that this particular command comes with a blessing. What we will see, though, if you will turn with me to Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, which is the extended commentary on the fifth command, what we're seeing here is that the fifth command itself is all about authority. So the fifth command proper in Deuteronomy five or Exodus chapter twenty is very specific about submission to authority, children to parents. But we will what we will see tonight in Deuteronomy 16, 17, and 18 is that Moses expands this motif of submission to authority to the larger nation of Israel. There will be some intermingling with idolatry, but I think what we can see as we pick up in the latter portion of Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18, through chapter 18, is we will see this divine commentary on the larger motif of the Israelites' submission to authority. So, With that sort of introduction, let's pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, which is where we left off last time. Moses says this to the Israelites, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice you shall not be partial and you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. All right. So here we have this, uh, this authority structure that is now, uh, going to be, Um, commanded by God to be set up in the land of Canaan once God gives the Israelites the land of Canaan according to the promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 15. And the authority structure that he's going to set up is judges and officers in all of their towns. Okay, so each of the towns where, um, so the land, as you know, is going to be apportioned to each of the um, 12 tribes. And, um, and, and so there's, there's some details there. But, but essentially, the, the land will be apportioned uh, to 12 tribes. And when those tribes go and they then uh, take over those lands from the Canaanites, they're obviously going to establish cities and towns in the promised land. And in each of those cities and towns, right, now they're supposed to establish an authority structure, which is described here in verse 18 as judges and officers. And then you can see, of course, that the commands to the judges and officers themselves are very clear at the end of verse 18. They They shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Verse 19. Do not distort justice. Do not be partial. Do not take a bribe. Verse 20. Justice and justice alone you shall pursue. And so this is the larger authority structure that God is going to put in place through the Israelites in the land of Canaan, which the Israelites are going to inherit. All right. Verse uh, 21. You shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of, kind of, of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. Neither shall you set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. And so we see here a, a, a warning against idolatry. And so you might map this, for example, Uh, to the second commandment, but I think that the tie to the fifth commandment here is that you have this prohibition of setting up these idolatrous symbols next to the altar of the Lord your God, okay? And so what we're seeing here is that ultimately the authority structure in the nation of Israel begins at the top with God and he's not going to share that authority with any false gods or goddesses. Verse 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. Okay, so this uh, sort of continues on from the end of chapter 16. And so the offering of these blemished sacrifices would be disrespectful to God who is the... um, the highest authority in the nation of Israel. And, and later in the Old Testament, for example, the prophets ask about <clears throat> these blemished sacrifices. Would you offer the king a blemished sacrifice? And, and of course, that's a rhetorical question where the answer is no. And so if you would not offer the king a blemished sacrifice, then what makes you think it's okay to offer the Lord God himself a blemished sacrifice since he is the ultimate authority over top Of the king. Uh, And if my memory serves me correctly, although I didn't look it up, I believe that is something that comes from the prophet Malachi. And so again, God is establishing his authority in the midst of the nation Israel. He himself is the highest and sole authority. He will not share that authority with any false gods. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 17. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host which I have not commanded and if it is told you and you have heard of it then you shall inquire thoroughly And behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses, or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people." So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Again, we see here um, a flyby on the second commandment that is this prohibition against idolatry but I think this comes under the larger category of authority because I want you to see in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 17 specifically and if it is told you and you have heard of it then you shall inquire thoroughly and so what we're seeing here is a judicial process a trial process that is to be overseen by the judges and the officers that we already talked about back in Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18. right? And you can see that one aspect of that trial is inquiry. That's what we see in verse four. And the nature of that inquiry is clearly articulated in verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death, and he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so this is guidance for the authority figures in Israel, the judges and the officers, for how they're to conduct the trial, right? And we see it's very important that there are at least two or three witnesses that provide the same story, the same evidence in this court or in this judicial proceeding uh, before a conviction is declared. And of course, we see here that if a, a man or a woman is truly worshiping false gods in the midst of the covenant people of Israel, then we see that that is a capital offense. And verse 7, the hand of the witnesses themselves shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from Your midst. One more comment before we head on to verse 8. I would just note that um, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, this evidence of two or three witnesses is extremely relevant in the New Testament for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Apostle Paul uh, articulates this particular um, law, this evidence of two or three witnesses, um, at least twice in the New Testament. You can see in 2 Corinthians 13 and also 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul articulating this law from the Mosaic Code. I would also say that this evidence of two or three witnesses is extremely relevant as you read the Gospel accounts and you see our Savior and Lord uh, Jesus Christ being on trial before the Sanhedrin themselves. And uh, it is noted there in the gospel accounts that the witnesses in that trial that were called before the Sanhedrin to bear testimony against Jesus, and they were uh, also most likely paid for their testimony, did not agree with one another. And so uh, for all of the, there are many reasons why the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin uh, was um, actually not a not a legal trial according to the Mosaic code, but one of the aspects of that is that the witnesses against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did not agree. With one another, and so they had no basis in the midst of that trial before the Sanhedrin, which we will see uh, in in a few verses. There was no basis for them to convict Jesus of wrongdoing and to put him to death. And so that was one aspect of the illegality of the trial of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. Verse eight: If any case is too difficult for you to decide, and so the you in this particular case is the judges and the officers in the local towns. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, and between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts. Then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case, and you shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. According to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or the left. And the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 13, Then all the people will hear and be afraid, and will not not act presumptuously again, and so here we see now that this there's this appellate court, if you will, and that appellate court um, is located in the place verse eight at the end of verse eight, the place which the Lord your God chooses, and so this is the uh, the formation of what we would later call the Sanhedrin, the Levitical priests in Jerusalem who are in charge of the temple, who are in charge of the temple worship, and most importantly who have the Torah, who have the law of God stored up in the temple, and it is assumed that their primary purpose is to study and to understand and to know God's law for many purposes, quite frankly, to teach the people God's law. But also in this case, you can see that they are appealed to if the local judges and officers cannot figure out what the right verdict is. Is And so again, laying the groundwork for even some of the narrative accounts we find in the gospel accounts in the New Testament, these, this, these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 17 are the beginnings of the Sanhedrin and the court therein. Okay, and so you can see in verse 9, these are Levitical priests and judges uh, in the place that God will choose, which we know eventually will become the city of David and Jerusalem. And you can see the trial language again and again, right? Verse 8, if any case is too difficult for you. Later, it talks about the courts, okay, which is literally the the judgment, in verse at the end of verse nine, the verdict. In verse ten, the verdict. In verse eleven, the verdict. And so you can see what's being established here is this authority structure in the land of Canaan that is going to judge for the Israelites. And of course the assumption is that these judgments will be good and right and true, right? And not besmirched by things like bribes. That is the working assumption. And, of course, all the Israelites are warned that whatever this court, these Levitical priests and judges who know the law, who teach the law, who understand the law, whatever they decide, whatever they decide in Jerusalem is final. Okay, And anyone who does not accept their verdict forfeits his life anyway for what... Purpose. Well, at the end of verse 12, you shall purge the evil from Israel. And verse 13, we see then all the people will hear and be afraid. And so we see that the consequences here, um, whether uh, the verdict is guilty or whether the person on trial does not accept the verdict, either way, that is a capital offense. And the purpose for those capital offenses. Those, uh, that capital, that, those capital consequences is articulated here in verse 13. It is an example to the rest of the Israelites that when they hear it and they see it, they will be afraid and their behavior will be changed and conformed to the law of God. Okay, And so that is clearly the purpose of the punishment in Deuteronomy 17, 13. Let's pick up in verse 14, and now we're going to see another aspect of this authority structure here from the lips of Moses. Verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, You shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Verse 18, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Okay, so important. There's so much here. So obviously in verses uh, 14 through 20, we have the laws that will eventually apply to the king as he is an authority figure over the nation Israel okay there's actually no moral judgment necessarily here we know that eventually when the Israelites ask for a king uh, when when Samuel is the prophet in just a few books later, um, we will see that morally speaking uh, God is not pleased, and certainly Samuel is not pleased with that request um, that that will be true in the history of Israel, but here uh, it 's not laid out as a moral issue necessarily it's just stated as when uh, the Israelites do indeed ask for a king, which God obviously knows he will do. And and so God is laying out how the king is to function as an authority figure, again, in the larger commentary uh, of the fifth commandment. Okay, so verse 15, let's see. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And of course, that is the case uh, in the choosing of Saul. uh, And then subsequently in the choosing of David and Solomon. And so this is something that at least for a time, uh, uh, the the, uh, kingdom of Israel follows. Uh, That would not be true all the way down through Israel's history, but at least it begins that way. And another stipulation in verse 15, that that king whom God chooses must be from among their own countrymen. They may not set up a foreigner as king over the country, okay? And so uh, the, the temptation... Uh, later on, may be that Israel will choose uh, a non Israelite king, uh, for example, uh, for the purpose of currying favor, uh, let's say, with a nation that is nearby them uh, that is stronger than they are for the purpose of their protection. God specifically prohibits that practice. Uh, and I would just note um, that we also here in the United States uh, have this same stipulation a requirement for U.S. citizenship. Uh, for somebody who's placed in uh, as the head of the executive branch. Verse 16, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Okay? So there's this... uh, this uh, forbidding against uh, gathering um, here would be a, a great army, uh, which uh, ultimately will we know in the history of Israel, will turn uh, and become oppressive, even to the Israelites. And so the king should stay humble in terms of um, the, his his uh, army and and how he um, enforces his role among his people nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. And so uh, at this time, uh, Egypt apparently was a source of horses, and so there would be a temptation to go back and return to Egypt, which the Lord forbids here in verse 16. Verse 17, so important. Deuteronomy 17:17. 17, 17, Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And so uh, we know, of course, in the history of Israel, uh, that um, Solomon especially is guilty of violating Deuteronomy uh, 17.17 and the multiplication of his wives. And of course, uh, we know how that turns out. Those uh, wives that he acquired for himself, they were, of course, not all Israelite wives, but he acquired for himself wives among the pagan nations and ultimately turned Solomon's heart away from Yahweh near the end of his life. And so uh, this is not only prescriptive, but also prophetic. At the end of 1717, 17, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself, which we also know uh, that Solomon did. And by the way, that doesn't exonerate David uh, in either one of these cases uh, either, but Solomon is sort of exhibit A for the violations of Deuteronomy 1717. 17. In verse 18, 19, and 20, extremely important principles. Let's look at it. Now it shall come about when he, he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, there are two principles here of authority that we need to understand. The first one is obvious on the face of the text, and that is that the king who is placed in a position of authority over the kingdom of Israel, he himself is under the authority of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He is an under-shepherd. He is a vice-regent Of God's covenant people and so as we consider this larger context of authority here in the fifth commandment we see that the king is always to be reminded that he himself is not the ultimate authority he is to function under the authority of Yahweh the covenant God of Israel that is the clear principle on the face of the text. The other principle that's in these verses that is not so clear, but is almost, is equally important, is that the king is not only under the authority of God himself, but the king is under the authority of God's word. The king is under the authority of God's word. He is under the authority of the law. Right? So sometimes in our own cultural context, right, you will hear people say that we are a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And that principle, that the law word of Yahweh being over top of the executive authorities comes from Deuteronomy 17. So the king is under two authorities. Yahweh himself And by the way, the reason why that's important is because the king will have prophets near him. Okay? And so when the prophet speaks to the king and says to the king, thus says Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the king is obligated to listen to that prophet. And and the king is also under the authority of the written and scripturated law word of Yahweh himself. And we can see that in the fact that the king is commanded to write down a copy of this law for himself when he assumes the throne. Now, the commentators go back and forth about what exactly is to be written down. Some commentators will say um, that it's the Decalogue, just the Ten Commandments. Uh, Most commentators would say, and I actually would, if, if I had to choose, I would come down on the side of, I would assume that what's in view here when the king is commanded to write down a version of the law, it is Deuteronomy, at least chapters 5 through 28. That is what I would assume to be in view here. Right? So it begins in Deuteronomy 5 with the Decalogue. It goes from chapter 6 through 26, which is where we are now, this extended commentary on the Decalogue. And then in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you have the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. That would be my working assumption, um, but uh, the commentators are, are spread out on that a little bit. Okay, So two very important principles bound up here uh, at the end of Deuteronomy 17 with regard to the king of Israel. Alright, let's work our way here through Deuteronomy 18. Uh, We'll move pretty quickly because these are things that that we've seen before already in the law. Picking up in verse 1. The Levitical priests, so now we're back to the, the Levites. Okay, we're moving away from the king and back to the Levites. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion, and they shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord, Yahweh, is their inheritance as he promised them. Now this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. You shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, and your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand... And serve in the name of the Lord forever. Verse 6. Now if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides and comes whenever he desires to the place which the Lord chooses, then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. They shall eat equal portions except what they receive from the sale of their father's estates. So here we have the portions of uh, food and grain uh, that are to be provided to the Levites. Of course, this, these are their wages for functioning as the authority figures in the nation of Israel. So in each of the towns, the, the judges and the officers, there will be local Levites that are, that are judging these, these, these cases and providing verdicts. And of course, then there's the, the, uh, the Sanhedrin and the other judges and officers in what will eventually become Jerusalem, right? And they are not to work for their wages. They are to be provided for and cared for because they are in authority over Israel and they are to spend the bulk of their time keeping, studying, meditating on and understanding the law of God so that when somebody comes to them for a trial, they can give good and righteous Verdicts, And so these are their wages. Verse 9. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them, the Canaanites, out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For those nations, verse 14, which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise... Okay, so let's stop at verse 14. So... Again, th- th- this is a forbidding of idolatry. Again, a flyby of the second commandment. But, but the key here is verse 14. For those nations, the Canaanites, which you shall dispossess, listen to all of these people who are listed here in verses 10 and 11. So in the Canaanite lands, the Canaanites, the pagans, listen as their authority figures to all of these people. The people who sacrifice their sons or their daughters in the fire. Right The people who use divination, the people who practice witchcraft, the people who interpret omens, and so on and so forth. These pagan witches, okay, are are serve as the authority figures for the pagan Canaanite religions, and God is saying to the Israelites, "These are not the people to whom you should listen. The people to whom you should listen are the people that I have appointed." They are the judges and the officers. They are the Levites who are subject to the law word that I have given to you. I am the ultimate authority. My law word is the ultimate authority. And the only people who have my authority, my delegated authority, to dictate what happens in Israel are the people whom I have appointed. Don't listen to any of these other people. They should be put to death. And again, we see this larger context of authority. Authority in the midst of Israel, God's covenant people. Let's finish out Deuteronomy 18, picking up in verse 15, these last few verses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb, Horeb is Sinai, remember, on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, Moses speaking, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so now we see a transition here at the end of Deuteronomy 18 to this prophetic line in the succession of Moses. And so this will have near field fulfillments and it will have a far field fulfillment fulfillment so for example the near field fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18:15 and following is going to be Joshua Joshua becomes the successor to Moses he is the one to whom the Israelites shall listen Okay, And, of course, the basis for this prophetic office in um, the nation of Israel is articulated in verses 16 and 17, because this is what Israel asked for at the base of Mount Sinai. You can see that in Exodus 18 and 19. And so Moses is raised up not just as the mediator of the Old Covenant, but also as the prophet, the one who receives the word from God and then passes it on to the Israelites themselves, which is actually where we are right here in the middle of Deuteronomy. But it will also have um, a far-field fulfillment. So there will be Joshua, and then there will be Judges, and then there will be Prophets, which uh, constitutes a significant portion of the Old Testament. But we also know that there is a far-field fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 and 18.18. And that far-field fulfillment is our Savior, Jesus Christ Himself, Moses here is functioning in his office as prophet, and he is predicting one ultimate prophet, and that is Jesus Christ. So we declare Jesus Christ to be to have a threefold office, office as prophet, priest, and king, and hit the basis for his prophetic office is found here in Deuteronomy 18. 15. And of course we don't make that up out of whole cloth. We say that and affirm that and believe that because the Bible tells us that. The early church proclaimed that Jesus himself, that Hebrew Messiah, was the ultimate fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.15 and 18.18. And you can see that in Acts chapter 3 verse 22 and Acts chapter 7 verse 37. The early church declared Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this prophetic office that began with Moses and now is ended in the prophet Jesus Christ, who also is our Savior and Lord. So, you can see, I hope, in Deuteronomy 16, 17, and 18, this larger context of authority figures in the nation of Israel, which is all bound up in the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother as a specific aspect of that authority. And so hopefully uh, this extended commentary uh, was helpful to you. And uh, Lord willing, the next time we come uh, together, we will pick up in Deuteronomy 19 as we consider the sixth commandment.